Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, who loves us with a transforming love. From our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ, and the Spirit who unites us all. Amen. 503 years ago, a youngish priest and teacher proposed talking points on how the church could re-examine practices and traditions that had led them away from the gospel truth. These 95 points of conversation and debate put a match to an already growing desire to reform the church and launched what we now call the Reformation. In the end, the Reformation didn't just reform the church, but reform the political structure of many of the countries in Europe. So it is not unusual for us as Lutherans to mark this day that Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the church wall. And it takes some pride in the actions of our spiritual ancestor. I mean, he was like, here I stand and all of that. We often forget, however, that Reformation is in our DNA And not only in our DNA, but is a core value of who we are as faithful people. That we are a church that continually reforms. So we too should be asking the questions of what practices and traditions are getting in the way of the gospel here in 2020. What has led us astray from the central proclamation of our faith? We don't always like to ask those questions. In the encounter that Jesus had in our reading today, we see that Jesus was also a reformer. Martin wasn't doing anything new, really. He was just doing what Jesus did. And in the story, we see that this idea of reforming goes back, not only to Jesus, but back to that first community where the commandments were given If we think about that first community, that ragtag group of Egyptian slaves that Moses leads out of slavery into the desert, they too were reformers of sorts. They were casting off the garment of slavery and sewing new garments of freedom, garments built around the pattern of loving God and loving neighbor. From the very beginning, the people of God have sought to live this way. And because we have their stories written down, we know that our ancestors, well, they didn't always do such a good job of loving God and neighbor. And so God would send reformers into their midst, prophets, messengers, a son, to call them back to the heart of who they were, and reform would happen. The reformation of the church is each generation asking the question, how do we follow the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love neighbor and ourselves? When faced with this question, however, our human tendency is to resist, to protect the status quo. That's built into our biology and our brain function. Our brains don't like to change and work to do everything they can to keep things the way they always have been. It's why changing habits is so hard. The brain likes habits and status quo. 
So it doesn't surprise me that when Jesus, the temple reformer, comes along, two of the religious parties that are in power balk against this new movement and its leader, which is why they seek to test Jesus so that they can discredit him, keep the status quo. It's really interesting to me that when Matthew tells us this story, he uses the same word that he used when he talks about the devil tempting Jesus or testing Jesus. That the Pharisees and the Sadducees would be put in the same bucket. Matthew's the only one to do this. So it clues us into the fact that like the evil one early on in his ministry, those in power are not so interested in changing, but seek to bring Jesus either to their side or at the very least to distract and discredit him. Also good to note is that this is the third time that a group of leaders has questioned Jesus like this in this part of Matthew's gospel. The first we heard about last week when they ask about taxes to the emperor. The second is a question around a woman who married seven brothers due to the laws that were in place. And now this third question about the greatest commandment. So it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are asking this question. These are both religious sects within Judaism during the time of Christ. Both groups honor Moses and the law, and they both have a measure of political power. The Sanhedrin that we hear about is the 70-member Supreme Court of ancient Israel and was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. The difference between these two groups is that religiously, the Sadducees were more conservative in one area. They insisted on a literal interpretation of the text of Scripture. Whereas the Pharisees gave oral tradition equal authority to the written word of God. So if the Sadducees couldn't find a command in the Tanakh or the Torah, they dismissed it as man-made and it was no longer valid. So that's how they kind of butted heads, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the law was important to both of them. So Jesus' answer to their question about what the greatest commandment is, which really would have no, I mean, how do you answer that question? Jesus' answer is genius and shows his understanding of not only scripture, but also of power and politics. Jesus uses the Old Testament scripture from the Torah to answer the question of which is the greatest commandment. First from Deuteronomy when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then again from Leviticus when he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in the desire to reform the church that Jesus found, Jesus isn't proposing anything new but is using the authoritative writings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to reform it. Martin Luther would do the same, pulling renewed understanding of Scripture to cut through all that had been piled on top of it in the form of tradition and power. The church in Luther's time had amassed great political power and wealth, and this had created systems that oppressed the average person, that disadvantaged the poor 
and controlled the populace with fear. Luther himself gets caught up in this, desperately seeking ways to appease the God that he has been taught was unappeasable. Until he returned to the truth found in Scripture. Then, when he tries to share what he has learned, the powers to be do everything in their power discredit him, to kill him. Now, Martin Luther was no Messiah. He wasn't Jesus. But what these stories remind us of is that our work of continually reforming, this call to constantly ask, how can we love God and love neighbor in our time, is not a path of roses and unicorns. It's a path that often pits us against the rulers of the day in our church and in our society. We are indeed the church that is called to continual reformation as we seek God in each generation. So church, what is God calling us to right now? October 25th, 2020. In what ways are we being called to reform the church? We are called to love God with all that we are, with our whole heart and our whole soul and our whole mind and our whole strength. Every single bit of ourself is called to love God. And every bit of ourself currently, I would say, is being pulled in a hundred different directions so that we have lost focus on what is the most important thing, which is to fear and love and trust God above all things. And when we ground ourselves in that truth, that it is God who we trust and no human powers, then the world around us begins to realign itself and our priorities change. It changes how we interact with people. It changes what we post on social media. It changes how we are as a church. It changes what we think of people. Which isn't easy, and it's scary, and it's hard. But it leads us then to loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Did you catch that? That's Old Testament language that we would love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Which means we need to love ourselves as much as God loves us. So that we can love our neighbors as much as God loves them. Which means we have some self-work to do too. But that doesn't preclude, if we're working on ourselves, we also have to help our neighbors. And if we have grace for ourselves in the midst of trials, then we better have grace for our neighbors in the midst of trials too. Which means instead of attacking people and criticizing people, perhaps we should be asking questions about what's going on in their lives. What's happening to them? Maybe we should listen to them and believe them, even though it's something that we haven't experienced. I know it was really hard for me to imagine that in our country, 
there were people who had systems built against them because I just hadn't experienced it. But when I allowed myself to begin to believe our African-American brothers and sisters and what their lives were like and what they had to do to prepare themselves to go out of the house, which was way different than what I had to do, even as a woman, then I began to see how the church needed to be reformed, how our society needed to be reformed. But I had to get out of my own way. And I had to extend grace and truth to them as much as I extend it to myself, living in the love of God. And the same could be said about the LGBTQ community, about immigrants, about gun owners, about women, to get out of our own way and begin to love our neighbors as God is calling us to love, knowing that God is where we place our trust. Dear ones, we are God's love in this world. So be careful with that responsibility. In the reality of God's love, we have grace and forgiveness, and so do others. And that love is powerful. Powerful enough to be an instrument of peace and justice. And powerful enough to be an instrument of oppression. So how are you going to use that instrument? What will we together build on this foundation of God's love for the sake of the world?